Welcome to another episode of a special podcast we like to call From the Archives. These are hand-picked sermons and sermon series preached in our church over the years by some of the pastors, elders and special guests we've had the privilege of listening to. We hope and we pray that as we listen to these classic messages, we'll be challenged in our walk with Jesus and encouraged to trust in him more and more. That being said, let's dive into the episode. Today is an important day because it marks the start of a new series from the archives looking at Psalm 119. Some fun facts about Psalm 119 are that it's the longest chapter in the whole Bible um, and it really is about the Bible. Every verse I think except one mentions the Bible or the law or scripture and God's word and things like that. And John, right out of the gates, is kind of diving into Psalm 119 and sharing with us the purpose of the series is to help us to see, to understand, um, not just Psalm 119, but what it teaches us about God's word and the Bible. This first sermon in the series is about how can we love the Bible and love God? Are those two separate loves? If we love the Bible, is that some kind of idolatrous worship, what have you? Anyway, Aisha, shut up and let you get on with listening to John. Blessed are they whose way are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their hearts. They do nothing wrong, they walk in his ways. You've laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his ways pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Do good to your servant and I will live. I will obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. You rebuke the arrogant who are cursed and who stray from your commands. Remove from me scorn and contempt, for I keep your statutes. Though rulers sit together and slander me, your servant will meditate on your decrees. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counsellors. Then some edited highlights. Verse 72. Verse 72. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Verse 97, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day and night. Verse 103, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 131. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Verse 162. I rejoice in your promises like one who finds great spoil. And finally, verse 167, 167, I obey your statutes for I love them greatly. 
I think it's fair to say the psalmist loved the Bible. He delighted in the Bible. And I want us to do the same. I want you not only to see someone love the Bible, I want you to leave loving the Bible too. Let me ask the really big question that I want to address this morning. Should a Christian really love the Bible? Should a Christian really delight in it? And if it's allowable, is it even possible? Is it possible to speak as the psalmist speaks? That's why my prayer for this entire series, but particularly for this morning, is verse 18. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. So what we need to do today is get our bearings. Because I'm going to be honest, Psalm 119 has been one of those psalms that has confused and perplexed me for years. For years, it's been a psalm that I didn't feel I could read. Because it used to just really bug me. What are you on about seeing wonderful things in your law? What are you delighting about in commandments? Surely it should be the gospel. Surely it should be the goodness of God. And so we need to find our feet. We need to get our bearings. Let me give you a rough guide to this psalm. It is the longest chapter in the Bible. It is an acrostic. That is, it's got a special structure. If we were to read it in Hebrew, which I can't do and I don't think you can do, uh, you would see that there's um, 176 verses split into 22 stanzas, 22 sections. And each section or stanza has eight verses. And each of the sentences in those verses starts with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, 22 stanzas. So in English, it would be the first stanza, they would all start with A, they would all then all start with B, and then they would all start with C. Now, this isn't like one of my, you know, kind of trying to get three alliterated points into a sermon, and it's kind of like, oh, that third point was a bit dodgy, wasn't it, John? Yeah, but they all started with C, so it's okay. It's not like that. This is a work of beauty. This is like a cross-stitch that someone has spent months and months and months and months and months on. This is the work of beauty. So what does Psalm 119 teach us? Why have we got this very beautiful psalm? Well, the psalm has a very simple agenda, and that's what I want to teach you this morning. The first thing he wants us to do is, it wants us to love the Bible. The first point this morning is this, we should love the Bible. And this psalm compels us to love the Bible. It's like a young man who's just got engaged. There's nothing more annoying, is there, than a young man who's just got engaged. All he wants to do is show you photos of his fiancée and how beautiful she is, and she's the most amazing thing in the world. And he's showing you because he wants you to go, yeah, she is. She's really amazing. He can't believe that someone else hasn't got the same view of her as he has. And really, the psalmist is doing exactly the same thing. He loves the Bible, he delights in the Bible, and he wants us to have the same. It's infectious, like a young, engaged man. Now, the psalm is all about God's verbal, written revelation. It's all about the words that God speaks, what we now call the Bible. Now, in the psalm, he uses lots of different words for the same thing. Um, So he will talk about law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commands, rules, promises, word. It all depends on your translation. But even within your translation, the ESV or the NIV or the message, he will use different words because in Hebrew, he uses different words. Now, all of those words are interchangeable. They're synonyms for the same thing, for God's revelation, God's word, the Bible. 
Now, the smarty pants amongst you would go, yeah, but he didn't have the whole Bible, Jonathan. Yeah, no, I know that. I, I, I'm not that thick. I, I did go to college for a little bit. Um, but he did have the Pentateuch. He did have the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, which makes it all the more amazing. I mean, can you imagine if I changed verse 18 this morning to this on a, on a start of a new series, open my eyes that I would see wonderful things in Leviticus. Welcome to Amford Evangelical Church. We're about to start an 18-month series on Leviticus. Wouldn't that you be, oh. But do you know what? When he says, show me wonderful things in your law, he's talking about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The law, the Pentateuch. But he's talking more generally about God's revelation that we today call the Bible, that Jesus would have called the Old Testament, and we call the Old and the New Testament. Um, Kevin DeYoung says this, Surely it is significant that the intricate, finely crafted, single-minded love poem, the longest in the Bible, is not about marriage or children or food or drink or mountains or sunsets or rivers or oceans, but about the Bible itself. Do you know, only seven verses in Psalm 119 don't have a word for Bible. Only seven verses. 169 of them have one of the words for the Bible. Law, commandments, statutes, word, whatever it is. So it's all about the Bible, and it's a love poem about the Bible. It is a love poem, and I'm going to be honest, I'm not a poem guy. I've only ever twice written a poem. One of them I can't share, um, but I can share the other one. I think I've shared it before. I wrote it, A-Level Welsh. Arian bari. For those of you who don't understand Welsh, you have missed the biggest blessing of your life, um, where I basically said to a girl I loved her because she was like Harry, the bin man from Bari. Um, <laughs> oh, this poem is far greater than anything I've ever done. But sometimes, if some of you were to find the poems you wrote when you were teenagers, it would be very embarrassing. If I asked Matt today to come up and to read the poetry he's written for Kath, it is it's amazing, isn't it? He still does it. He sends it every week on a Tuesday afternoon. Matt's it. I'm lying now. But it would be great if it was true, wouldn't it? But let me read you some of this love poetry, okay? Listen to this. It, it, you feel awkward. Um, verse 48. Verse 48. I lift my hands to your commandments, which I love. I meditate on your decrees. Verse 97. Verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day. Verse 119, all the wicked of the earth you discard like dross, therefore I love your statutes. Verse 127, because I love your commandments more than gold, more than pure gold. And one last one in this example, verse 140, your promises have been thoroughly tested and your servant loves them. This is a love poem. C.S. Lewis uh, says this, this was to me at first very mysterious. Is anybody in the C.S. Lewis camp here? This was at first to me very mysterious. And it may be to you too. What is he doing loving law, commandments, statutes, Deuteronomy, Leviticus? But C.S. Lewis goes on to say this. If we cannot at all share his experience, we shall be losers. It's interesting. Starts off mysterious and then he says, but do you know what? If we can't get to his experience, we'll be missing out. And that's why I want to label this point today. We've called the series Explore and Experience Psalm 119. Part of why the Psalms are in the Bible 
is to instruct our emotions. The Psalms have been put in the Bible to make sure we know how to feel and have emotions. From depression and anger to love and delight, the Psalms cover them all. And Psalm 119 teaches us how to feel and how to have emotions about the Bible. Now, there's a great book on Psalm 119 called Bible Delight by Christopher Ashe. Um, Everything, my whole kind of perspective on Psalm 119 comes from this book. It's very easy to read. Um, It's very heartwarming. I was so uh, encouraged by it. I've bought a pile of them. Um, So you can actually, if you want to, over the next um, couple of months, if you want to follow along and if you want to study um, Psalm 119 in your own time, then there's copies available on the Welcome Desk for £5. We've got them really cheap, uh, £5, um, and that will really help you if you want to dig deeper and go, okay, what did he mean by that and, and experience it? But Christian Rash says something very important. He says, with Psalm 119, you don't just need to know the words, you need to know the tune. You need to know the tune. Um, That's why C.S. Lewis points out the Psalms are poems and poems intended to be sung. When you read Psalm 119, you need to know the feeling. You need to know the heart. You need to know the emotion. It's always the way with the Psalms, isn't it? If you were to sing the Psalms, you could never sing them all to the same tune. From the midnight blues of how long, O Lord, to the ecstatic praise of give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever, each psalm has a different tune. And within Psalm 119, the psalm is so long, it has different tunes. It has major keys and minor keys. It lifts and it falls. It raises you up and it meets you down in the depths. And it teaches you how to feel about the Bible so it's a love poem about the Bible that wants us to love the Bible too. Psalm 119 wants us to fall in love with the Bible. Now, I understand that we will struggle with this. Some of us will struggle with this in terms of our understanding. So what I'm saying at the moment doesn't fit your theology. Um, so some of you at the moment are going, hold on, John. We need to love God and put Christ first. Surely not love the Bible as if the two were in opposition. Now, at points today, I may go a little bit deeper. I think it's helpful to cover this ground publicly. Um, whilst God and the Bible are separate, they are separate, being separate doesn't mean opposite. Being separate doesn't mean that if you love the Bible, you can't love God. What I want to show you is actually in loving the Bible, you are loving God. And so you need to think that through, and I'll, I'll spend a bit of time on that. Some of you in your understanding as well can't love the Bible because you think the Bible contains errors or that there's some bits which are better and more relevant than others. Um, You're someone who has a canon within the canon. So the canon of Scripture, 66 books. You would say, well, there's some bits which are definitely of God and some bits which aren't of God or if they are of God, they were from God for another time but not for now. And you kind of stand there and go through and say, I believe that, I don't believe that, I choose this, I don't choose that. And you have a canon within a canon. So you're happy to say, John 3.16, yep, 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 I'll put that in canon. Well, not all of it, but some of it, the bits I like that I understand. Um, And you have a canon within a canon. I'm coming and saying, no, no, we should love all of the Bible. So understanding, and we'll walk through that over the next couple of weeks, some of us will struggle with this in terms of experience um, because we've tried to love the Bible and we can't. Um, to be honest, sometimes I read the Bible and I'm bored. Sometimes I read the Bible and I'm baffled. Um, 
One of the most helpful things for me in my Christian walk was when someone said, in your head, create a box called awaiting further light. Because there were so many things I didn't understand. So I thought I'm putting them in a box called awaiting further light. Um, some of us have started in Genesis and given up by Leviticus. Most of us have probably gone good guns on January the 1st and given up by half term. Um, and in our experience, we're struggling with this. But do you know what? The psalmist goes so far in this. He loves the Bible so much that he actually weeps at those who don't. That shows how much you love something, isn't it? Is you can't handle it when other people don't love it. Have a look at verse 53. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. Verse 53. Indignation grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. Or verse 139. 139. My zeal wears me out for my enemies ignore your words. Um, And one more Psalm, verse 158. I look on the faithless with loathing, for they do not obey your word. Perhaps some of you have had the experience of taking the object of your love, the person you've fallen in love with, to meet your friends or your family, and they don't agree. You think this person is the best person in the world, the person you want to spend your life with, and they meet your family, and your family take you to one side and say, not good enough. We, we don't like them. And it breaks your heart, doesn't it? You don't go, what, you, you don't like them? That's fair enough. You weep. You go, you don't like them, you don't love them, but don't you see what I see? Don't you experience what I experience? And the psalmist loves the Bible, loves the law so much that when other people don't, he weeps. I, I would say that one of the hardest and most difficult things in ministry is seeing people desperate for God but refusing to open the Bible. It's like seeing someone drown and being thrown a life raft and refusing to grab it. It is one of the hardest, hardest things. So this chapter firstly tells us we should love the Bible, but secondly, this is my second point, it says this, we should love the Bible because in doing so we love God. We should love the Bible secondly because in doing so we love God. Now please note, I'm not saying that the Bible is God. I'm not saying we should worship this book. I'm not saying we should love this book. No, no, we don't worship a book. I don't want to divinize, I don't want to make divine the Bible. But we do need this morning to grapple with a theological question. And I bet the KGB at this point are so glad you've been in this week. But we really need to grapple with this question. And honestly, if as a teenager I had grasped this, I think it really would have helped me as a Christian. We need to grasp the relationship between God and his words. God and his word. And when you grasp this, you will see that to fall in love with the Bible is actually falling in love with God himself. So let's think about it. Let's go all the way back to Genesis, creation. How does God create the world? With his words. Does he say, I'm going to have some light, just wait while I go and flick the switch? No, he doesn't. He says, let there be light. And the light comes. For God to speak is to do. For God, his words are active and powerful. He doesn't need to flick a switch. He just says, and it happens. His word is an extension of him. The New Testament would go so far as to say his word is Christ. That that is how he created the world. 
So it's in creation he speaks. Think about in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. How does God have a relationship with Adam and Eve? Yes, he comes and walks in the cool of the day, but what does he do? He speaks to them. He tells them how to live. He says, go forth and multiply. Enjoy. Fill the earth. And his words reveal his heart. When Satan comes as a serpent, what does he attack? The words of God. Did God really say? Because to attack God's word is to attack God himself. For God, his words are equal to him. There is a relationship. They are ontologically linked. To obey God's word is to obey God, and to disobey God is to disobey his word. Uh, Timothy Ward, who is very helpful on this, says, When Adam and Eve disobey God's spoken command, they fracture their relationship with God himself. To disobey the words God is speaking is to disobey God himself. Uh, Let me give you an example. Uh, Parents of teenage kids, Uh, you deserve a medal. That's the first thing I will say. Parents of teenage kids, imagine one day you go out for the day and you sit your two teenage kids down and you say, we have left food for you in the fridge, which you are to eat and don't fight. (laughs) We've left food in the fridge, which you are to eat and enjoy and don't fight. You come back five hours later and what have they done? They've had a food fight. It's not quite what you said. You've come back to tears and a messed up house. They have chucked the food at one another. Does the parent at that point say, that's okay, you only disobeyed my words? Would you say that? That's okay, you only disobeyed my words. No, because your words are an extension of you. They are ontologically linked. To disobey your words is to disobey you. I'm just making it sound complicated by calling it ontologically linked. It's very simple, really, isn't it? And it's just the same with God. To disobey his words is to disobey him. So think of the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. We're still in Genesis. I'm not going to do every book of the Bible, but just think about the covenant. God comes and reveals to Abraham his plan and says, follow me. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will make you as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Now come, you'll be my people in my place under my rule. And in doing that, Abraham enters into a relationship with God through the words. The words are our way into God. Let me show you this in the passage. Have a look at Psalm 119 and, and verse 10, for example. So, so listen now. Um, listen to how this plays out. Verse 10. I seek you with all my heart. So I seek you, God, with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. Do you see how he links that there? To seek you with, my com- with all my heart is to seek your commands. The two are the same. Have a look at verse 13. I love this little play on lips and mouth. With my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. That's how they viewed the word. That's why I keep saying it's verbal written. God's word comes in words and is written down. So 2 Peter 1.21 says this. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then just to help, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So when you read the Bible, you're hearing the voice of God. You're hearing the words of God, and those words are powerful and active. Another verse, Hebrews 4.12. 
For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrows. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Bible is the sword of the spirit. So to come back to Timothy Ward, he says this, Christians certainly are in relationship with a saviour, not paper and ink book. Our devotion should not be towards, should be towards a living Lord, not towards printed on a page. But we've got to be careful of what he calls a false dichotomy. We do not have to choose between believing in the Bible and believing in Christ. As Christians, we're called to do both. Now, I need to dig deeper because some of you are still looking at me like I've got two heads. John chapter 15, I want you to see how Jesus views the Bible. And we're going to do this in two or three weeks' time, a bit more. Um, But John chapter 15, listen to verses 4, 5, and 7. John 15, verse 4. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. This is what Jesus says to us. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So what's he saying? You abide in me and I will abide in you. Okay? Very clear? He's repeated it. This is Jesus. He's very simple. Verse 7. Verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. What's Jesus done there? He is just putting himself and his words interchangeably. He has said, how do I remain in you? I remain in you by my words. Go home and look at chapter 5, John chapter 15. To remain in Christ is to have his words remain in you. Now, I've been teaching you this the last month, so you understand this already. Do we just believe in lifeless written words? No, we believe in the inspired word of God, which is written by the Spirit, and we have the Holy Spirit of God within us who illuminates our heart. So this isn't just mere transaction of information. This is a supernatural experience. God's word by his Spirit who wrote this book will dwell in my heart, and that's how Christ remains in me. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Just watch how the author to the Hebrews quotes the Psalms. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. So, as the Holy Spirit says, present, active, now. Not as the Holy Spirit said, but as the Holy Spirit says. God's word is alive, it's present tense. Go to Romans chapter 9. This is the sermon you're going to have to download to listen to again. Romans chapter 9. Verse 17, just, just, just think about what's being said here and ask yourself the question, has Paul got this right? Because I know you love to ask that question. Has Paul got this right? Romans chapter 9, verse 17, For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Who said that? Who said that? The Scripture. But in Exodus, who said that? God. God. Now that is fascinating, isn't it? Paul, quoting Exodus, quotes the very words of God and calls them Scripture. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. The Lord Jesus. Think again now, go back to Genesis in your head. Who said what? Matthew chapter 19. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made the male and female and said, who said? 
the creator. The creator said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife. In Genesis, did God appear and speak, for this reason, a man will? The author of Genesis comments and says, for this reason, a man will leave. So now the Lord Jesus, just though I got Jesus on my team this morning, the Lord Jesus comes along and says, I know the Bible says, but I can say the creator said. In the Bible, the word of God and God are interchangeable. The scriptures and the laws are interchangeable. If God said it, the Bible said it. If the Bible said it, God said it. It's interchangeable. The Bible, by being God's written account of his verbal revelation, is an extension of him. And we need to be careful not to draw a false dichotomy. Yes, God and the Bible are separate. We don't worship this book. But how we treat what's contained within this book is exactly how we treat God exactly how we treat God, which is why the psalmist delights in the Bible. He's not delighting in a book. He's not delighting in a book. He's delighting in the God who he meets through the book with the Holy Spirit inside of him. So point one, we should love the Bible. Point two, we should love the Bible because in doing so we love God. Point three, here's the big point. We should love the Bible because in doing so we love God who loves us with an unfailing love. We should love the Bible because in doing so, we love God who loves us with an unfailing love. You see, in loving the Bible, we love God, and the God we find in the Bible is a God of amazing love. See, this is where we need to understand what does he mean by law, statutes, commandments, and all that. This is why Psalm 119 was closed to me for ages, because I didn't understand how can you get so excited about laws? Don't put these kind of fabrics together, and don't do this with milk and don't do this with mildew. I mean, how do you get excited and love that? And then I read Bible Delight by Christopher Ashe. I'm just going to be honest and give the kind of credit and realized I'd completely misunderstood what the psalmist meant. So you may be just like me, have completely misunderstood. And once you grasp this next point, Psalm 119 just opens like a blossoming flower. That's all I'm saying. By the Holy Spirit, Psalm 119 for me just opened like a blossoming flower. You see, what we get in Psalm 119, blessed is the man who obeys all your precepts, I love you because I obey them all, you get an idea of a priggish, self-righteous know-it-all, don't you? When you read Psalm 119, um, Christopher Ash says it's this, it's like a little kid in school going up to the headmaster with a rule book and saying, oh, Mr. Headmaster, I love your rules. Can you sign my rule book, please? That is a kid who's not going to get on well in school. I mean, it's terrible. Kevin Day Young says it's, it's like a son coming up to his father and saying, oh, father, I have seen wondrous things in your rules in the house. No kid says that. I've come up with my own illustration. Gav. Now imagine you're driving through Pontedoe and Gav pulls you over in his police car and he's got his speed camera and he says, John, you are speeding, I'm booking you. Would I turn around and say, oh Gav, I have seen beautiful things in your speed gun and laws. I love you, Gav, for booking me for speeding. No, I wouldn't. I'd go, that Gav. Fancy a couple of weeks off tithing. Um, just, just let me go. I mean, it just wouldn't work. What's going on? It's crazy, isn't it? Well, we need to understand what's going on. Now, one thing that's helpful is to realize that in this day and age and in this culture, there wasn't much law and order. 
You see, in, in the UK, we are actually, believe it or not, blessed by good law and order. We really are. Um, the police, the court system, for all our complaining, is, is good. The small man will get his day in court, and that's fair to say, um, and that is good. We don't know what it's like to live in a country where the small man doesn't get his day in court, where the small man doesn't get justice. And in Old Testament times, the small man lived in a very unjust society. This is what C.S. Lewis points out. So actually, if I was in Pontedower and I was being beaten up, which in Pontedower is not unlikely, um, if I was there being beaten up, Gav came along with his asp and he said, in the name of the law, <laughs> I don't know, is that what policemen do? I don't know. And he came, but he's got the full force of the law now. Someone is breaking the law. They are, they are assaulting me. Gav comes with the full force of the law and he now saves me and rescues me. I would genuinely turn around and say, Gav, I owe you big stuff. Thank you so much. I'd be on Facebook, how great are the police, how, how amazing is the law system, because I was the small man, and if the law wasn't there, I would be in trouble. Now, there's a sense in which in the Psalms, when they love the law, they love the fact that everybody is getting away with everything, but there is a God in heaven who sees everything, and they won't get away with it in the end. So in a the sense, they're living in an unjust society, and that can help us understand the Psalms. But in Psalm 119, whilst that is working and happening, there's something deeper, there's something greater. When the psalmist talks about law, when he talks about rules, he's talking about a deeper law than you're thinking. He's talking about deeper judgments. He's talking about a deeper promise. He's actually talking about the gospel. Think about it. It really is odd to say you love rules and regulations. How do you delight in rules and regulations? How do you take refuge in commandments? How do you rest in all God's statutes if they just don't do this, do that? That doesn't make any sense at all until you realize that for the Old Testament believer, all of the laws and all of the rules and all of the statutes were all part of the covenant. Do you know the most important word in Psalm 119 isn't there? It's the word covenant. It's like water in a goldfish bowl. It's the one thing you don't see. But if it wasn't there, the goldfish would be dead. The air that is breathed in Psalm 119 is covenant. The whole context of the Old Testament is covenant. Whenever an Old Testament believer talks about statutes or commands, they're all covenant statutes or commands. They're all part of the covenant. You see, the only way we can relate to God is through covenant. Covenant is a two-way agreement from a, a bigger party to a smaller party. And the covenant in the Old Testament is God coming to Abraham and saying, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I am going to bless you. Everything that comes after that in the Old Testament comes as part of that covenant. This is what's going to happen. This is how you live in relationship with me. This is how you live in covenant with me so actually when you read through psalm 119 for example it keeps talking about the lord the lord is the covenant name for god it keeps talking about unfailing love did you notice that unfailing love it specifically says unfailing love because the hebrew word for love there is the covenant word for love and then the other word that keeps coming up is servant which again is a covenant term the most important word in Psalm 119 isn't there. When you realize that what he loves are covenant laws, covenant commands, covenant judgments, covenant commandments, when you get that, 
It makes all the difference. You see, what happens is many of us have an idea that in the Old Testament, people were saved by good works. We think that God came and said, do this, do that, do this, do that, do this, do that, and if you do it, I love you. And then it comes to the Old Testament and God goes, they didn't do it, did they? We better send Jesus, plan B. That's not how it happens at all. Actually, in the Old Testament, they were only and always saved by grace. Think about it. Think about the Ten Commandments themselves. When were the Ten Commandments given? Who thinks they were given before they were saved from Egypt? Who thinks they were given after they were saved from Egypt? It's after the Passover and the Exodus, the Old Testament foreshadowing of the cross and resurrection. It's only after God saved them, and it's only after they're in a relationship with him that he gives them the law. And then after he's given them the law, what does he tell them to do next? Build a tabernacle, which is where we'll make atonement for sin, because you're still not going to do it. It's always all of grace. We've been preaching through Genesis in Hope Gwendraith, and every week you kind of just come back to the same thing. Yeah, they were scumbags. <laughs> yeah, they got it wrong. Yeah, they were a nightmare. Um, but they were saved by grace. It's all by grace. You see, the covenant is two-way. It's two ways. You need to understand the two ways, and you need to understand which way goes first. The covenant primarily is from God to man. God comes and says, I love you, and you will be my people. I love you because I love you. I am a God of grace. So that is the primary way a covenant happens. But it is two-way. Then God says, and this is how you live in covenant with me. But that second direction only happens because of the first direction. And the second direction is all within the context of the first direction. So when actually we follow God and we don't keep his commands, grace overtakes. I still love you. You're still my people. Do you remember in Hosea? Hosea, they're all going off prostituting themselves to anybody and everyone. And God comes and says, I will halloo her. I will win her back. I will make her beautiful again. It's all about grace. You see, the covenant in the Old Testament is looking forward to, pointing to, promising, prophesying Jesus. It's all looking forward to Jesus. And when Jesus comes and lives in our place and dies on the cross and rises from the dead, he pays for all the sins. He covers them all. What the psalmist loves is not rules and regulations in and of themselves. What he loves is the covenant. He loves the fact that God loves him and his judgments will never be changed. He has judged that I am right in Christ and that will never change. And his rule will never change. He is in charge and he is preparing a place for me and that will never change. And his commandments, well, that's now life, a new life. And do you know what? In a world where your neighbor was sacrificing their kids and putting them in the foundations of walls, you would love a God who comes and says, love your neighbor as yourself. Look after the alien and the fatherless. Leave the ends of your land so that the poor can come and glean. You would look at those commandments and you would look at the heathens and you would say, oh God, I love you and your law. I love you and your law. One of the things that very often happens with children who are fostered and adopted is they go from a household with no boundaries to a household with boundaries. Which house do the kids love? It's the house with boundaries, with consistency, with law. And do you know what? In the Old Testament, 
when people found themselves in relationship with God and his law, they loved it. But more than that, they loved the covenant context of it. So, right, let me wrap this up. It won't be this long or this deep again. Next week, I'm going to do a children's storybook version of it, okay? So if you didn't understand this week, come next week to the all-age service, and then you just say, oh, I got it the first week. But uh, next week, we will do the, uh, the, 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 the dummy's guide. Um, but it's this. Because this has taken me months to work out, and you've got to try and get it in 45 minutes, so I understand this is hard. God's word, the Bible, are God's words. And how we respond to the Bible is how we respond to God. We need to understand that. Can you imagine if someone texts you and invites you for coffee, and you text back and say, yeah, great, can't wait, and you don't bother turning up for coffee? Does the person say, don't worry about it, it was only a text? No. Whether it was in text or in person, it's just the same. And through the Bible, God is inviting us to meet with him. Through the Bible, God is inviting us to experience his word. And that's read and remembered. That's private and it's public. Do you know what God wants us to be? Do you remember like Mary, when Martha was getting stressed out in the kitchen? It says that Mary sat at the feet of Jesus listening to his teaching. That's what he wants us to do. That's why we love his word. Because in his word, we find a God who has loved us with an everlasting covenant, who has loved us with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what? When you read through the Bible, I'm going to give you three top tips in one minute before the kids come in. Firstly, put this into practice. Just, just read the Bible this week, okay? Set time aside and read it. This is an invitation. God has invited you. But secondly, don't just put it into practice. Persevere. I am going to say it. At times, Bible reading is boring, and it is baffling. And do you ever get that question where you think, why didn't God just write a systematic Q&A? Wouldn't that have been much easier? Today I am worried. Let's look at the chapter on worry. Today I'm thinking about a new job. Let's look at the chapter on new job. Today I'm wondering about God's relationship between grace and love. Let's look at his chapter on grace and love. Why didn't God just do it that way? Well, it's because what does God want with us? He wants a relationship. If you want to have a real relationship with them, don't go up to them and say, could I have a copy of your CV, please? It'll tell you lots about them, but you won't get to know anybody through a CV. That's why, really, when you're going for a job, a good company will not just look at your CV, but will interview you and get to know you. Do you know what? How do you get to know your kids? How do you get to know your family? How do you get to know your friends? Hang out with them. Spend time with them. And let me be honest, sometimes it'll be boring. Some people are more boring than others. But sometimes it will be boring. But it's in the midst of those moments that you really get to know them. The Bible is designed at times to be a slow burn. The Bible at times is meant to baffle you. Because as you walk through slowly but surely, you meet God. And as the years go by, by the power of his spirit, you start to get more and more of God. Not just facts and, and statements, but God himself. So persevere and finally pray. Just pray. Ask God. Say, God, reveal yourself to me through your word. Well, that's it for another episode of our From the Archives podcast. We hope that you found it challenging and encouraging. 
And as always, we'd like to offer you a few quick next steps that you can take right now. If there's anything that you'd like to discuss or any questions that have been raised, please do contact us via email to contact at amfordchurch.com. If you want to know more about what's going on in the life of the church, make sure that you like us on Facebook. And lastly, why not check us out on YouTube, where you'll find additional teaching to complement our regular sermon podcast and our From the Archives podcast. Thanks for listening.